glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11. This verse is, is pretty familiar. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. So that has to do, these two verses are connected. He's going to say in verse 12, As an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. The ear is the receiver of that reproof. The wise reprover is like the the gold ring. It beautifies. It's of extremely high value. You put the two together and it makes something beautiful and valuable. And so, again, I've meditated on this text probably a good part of this week. There's two components at work here. I believe you can have an obedient ear and, and, an, and a person that's not a wise reprover and that obedient ear is not going to get much help. So, for instance, King Saul was often reproving people under him for not cooperating with him. He had some people who had obedient ears. Jonathan, his son, had an obedient ear. But all he wanted Jonathan to do is help him kill David. So it was not a good combination. On the flip side of that, you can have a wise reprover like the prophet Samuel, as I mentioned before, and you have a man like Saul and a disobedient ear, and it's a bad combination. You take the Lord Jesus Christ. Never was there a wiser reprover. He took the parables that he gave and he unmasked. I read this week in Matthew 25, the number of Matthew 23, 24, and 25, he refers to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes as whited sepulchers, a generation of vipers, hypocrites, and then he gives parables to, to tell what they were. And the Bible says when they perceived that, it, that they spake this of, him, of them, they tried to kill him. Now he wisely, carefully, meticulously revealed what they were but they had, did not have an obedient ear. And it didn't. It was not a beautiful thing uh, because you had the wiser prover, but not the obedient ear. However, when you put the two together, when you put the two together, you get something that is of tremendous value. What we have in 2 Samuel chapter 12 is a wiser prover and the man Nathan, an obedient ear and the man David. And though the story leading up to this is as ugly as it gets, what took place here is so valuable that all these Thousands of years later, we're still getting help from what took place in that text of Scripture and what took place in David's court when Nathan came. Uh, and so you're familiar with the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I hope you're over to 2 Samuel 12 now. We'll read the first 14 verses in just a minute. In chapter 11 is David, what we call David's great sin. He stayed home from battle when he should have been at war. He was idle. He let his eyes go where they did not belong. He let his imagination go where it didn't belong. And he sinned greatly. He ruined a man's home. He ruined a woman's life. Uh, He wrecked his own family for years to come by a momentary decision listening to the passions of his own flesh. Well, I tell you, we, we do wise, be very wise to meditate on the events that took place in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and know that God allowed, God spared his life. We'll see that in a few minutes. But things were never the same again after that. And God put this in the Bible not so we can live in dread of when it happens to us, but that we can learn and say, let us be wise as God's children and not follow that pattern. But here's the pattern we do want to follow. Let's say you had committed a horrendous sin like David, a sin that's worthy of death. What's the natural reaction to do when we commit a sin that we know we're going to be punished for? 
Hide it. Don't let anybody know about it. Pretend that you never did it. Right? That's natural. I didn't say it's right. I said it's natural. We learn. You know why we are so skilled at hiding sin by the time we reach 25 years old? We've been doing it for about 22 years. <laughs> right? By the time you're three or four years old, when a child is two, they're just defiant. They don't hide any sin. It's just all out in the open. Once they realize there are consequences attached, they say, well, I'm going to hide this. And then what happens is we become professional at pretending to be right when we're doing wrong, just like David did. Here's the scary thing about David. He had one an egregious sin in his life, and there was an example in front of him, and he didn't even know he was the man until Nathan told him he was. So he didn't have the Holy Spirit of God within him. I understand that. But the fact of the matter is he had a conscience. It's amazing how deceitful our own hearts and flesh are. And you hear this preached on much, but because it's, it's something I, I'm, I'm not sure we're as aware of as we ought to be, we can't trust our flesh, and that includes our fleshly reason. You can't trust it. The only thing you can trust is God. Amen? You don't trust our imagination. We don't trust our emotions. We don't trust our reasoning. We trust the Word of God. We trust the Holy Spirit of God because He's the one that always tells the truth. So as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 12, while the circumstances leading up to this are horrible, you put yourself in David's shoes. The last thing you'd want to do is be found out that God had found him out and God is going to confront him with what he's done wrong. May I say this? If you are a child of God, God will confront you with your sin. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Because God loves us, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Chastisement is the father's confrontation of the child with sin. It's what it is. What will make or break our fellowship with God is how we respond to that confrontation. And so then, let's start in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Verse 1, and the Lord sent, let's ponder that for a moment. Who sent? And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children and did eat of his own meat drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd, to dress for the wayfaring man that was, uh, that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb, and dressed it for the man that was come to him. David's anger was kindled, was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things Wherefore thou hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor." And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. 
For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now, if you were Nathan, I mean David, and you're a king, you have the power to have that man hanged if you want to. He has no right to come in and tell you this as far as from a king's perspective. If you have the power to shut him up and never hear him again, he's just told you, you have sinned egregiously before God. Nathan's not the king, he's just a preacher. You've sinned against God, the sword's never going to depart from your house. I mean, if I don't know, this takes a lot of boldness for Nathan to come in here and preach this. But listen how David responds, verse 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Now, I heard this explained very well. I believe when David says, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan had said, Thou art the man. Prior to that, David said, The man that did this shall surely die. I believe when he said, I have sinned, he understood, I am accepting the death penalty. That's why the next statement is, you're not going to die. God's pardoned you. I believe David fully expected to die. You think about the kind of humility it takes to say, I as a king have transgressed God's law, and by that law as a king, I'm going to have to die. I accept that. That takes a tremendous amount of faith. And it takes an obedient ear. Of all the things you can fault David for, you cannot fault him for ever balking at the rebuke of God's word. One of the things the Lord, through this text and numerous texts in the Bible, if you read Proverbs, and I strongly encourage you, especially young people, read it every month. It it will do you great good. Put it on top of your regular Bible reading. If you're reading through your Bible in a year, tag Proverbs on top of it because one of the things it's going to tell you over and over and over, and that's why you hear it out of this pulpit over and over and over, is listen to reproof. Don't ever get stubborn or hard against reproof. Now, that doesn't mean we listen to accusation. How many know there's a difference between accusation and reproof? Accusation constantly is someone telling you you've done something wrong when you haven't. Reproof is God convincing you of the truth through human beings, through the Scripture, when you have done wrong. Meaning it is reproof is based on truth. Accusation is built on fear. Uh, reproof is there to correct us and get us right. But one of the things Proverbs talks about over and over and over, it's a theme throughout the entire book, is what we see demonstrated in David here. And that is to accept reproof here, he has to accept the death penalty. But he does anyway. That's why I said it's an extreme example. And so all I want to do tonight, we're going to break this down into four parts that, that really give us what it looks like to have a message preached to us. Uh, when God reproves us, uh, the question we have to ask is, do I have an obedient ear like David? Did, am I going to be on that end of the spectrum now, there'll be in all of our lives an opportunity to reprove. We can be that wise reprover. Parents are reprovers. Pastors and teachers are reprovers. And to some degree, we go out and preach the, law, the gospel of the lost. We are reproving. The Spirit of God is using us to reprove them. But the fact of the matter is, we need to ask ourselves, am I, am I a David or am I a Saul when it comes to reproof? I believe this. I'll, I'll say it again. With all my, if Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church, we're a body, are we not? Then the ear of this body, let's look at this from a figurative standpoint, a collective standpoint for a moment. What kind of ear does Bonner's Free Baptist Church have? 
Does God have to reprove us for the same things over and over and over and over to get us to act in obedience? Or can He say something one time and it gets done? We need to have the kind of ear that God can speak and we know His mind and there's not a bristling of ego or pride in any one of us to say, no, nah, I, don't, I don't think that one of the things God has to do is get us back to the cross again and again until we're dead to our own ego, to our own pride, so that we're able to be pliable and usable in His hand. That's what He had in David. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, He's told Saul, I have sought a man after mine own heart. This is what He's talking about. A man that was more desirous to be right with God than he was to be alive. He would rather be in agreement with God and dead than alive and in conflict. You can study his life. That's where he wanted to be. He said, I would rather be in agreement with God and be gone than live an existence of disobedience. And that's why God used David in such a great way. That's why he's using us tonight. Tonight, David, as the obedient ear, becomes the reprover of us, does he not? Let's consider four things. Number one, this wise reprover begins his message with an analogy. God has often taught us by parables, has he not? The Lord Jesus used them all the time. Earthly stories, sometimes stories that uh, they were not fictional in the sense that they were false in their content, but they were not, they were just parables. He, the parable of the prodigal son is a story the Lord created to teach a lesson. Here, Nathan is so wise. He doesn't just come in and say, I know about your adultery and your murder. He wants David to have a mirror. He wants David to be able to see himself clearly. And so what he does is he, if you would, he sets trap for him. He, he, he comes in and says, David, you're the king. I want to tell you about a man in your kingdom. You know, it's, it, here's, what, here's what Nathan understood. It is always easy to see sin in someone else. Always. One of the things that disturbs me in our day, and I've said this, I was preaching the jail on last Wednesday night, and one of the inmates, uh, he listens to some degree, but boy, I tell you, I had to paddle hard to get through my message on Wednesday because of one of the inmates talking about how much he despised certain sinful people in our culture. He can't believe how bad people are, how wicked people are. I finally said to him, I said, let me ask you a question. So do you think you've ever done anything to make God feel toward you like you feel toward them? Well, probably have. But isn't it amazing how indignant we can get over Braden's sin? Isn't it amazing how indignant you can get over my sin? So often for us to be able to see our own sin, we've got to see it in somebody else first. As in water, face answereth to face, so the heart of man to man. One of the things the Lord has done for me He's given me nine little mirrors. And I find this to be true. If I start having great difficulty with one of my children, one of the things that kills prideful, how in the world could one of my kids be like, never mind, I know exactly how they turned out like that or why they're dealing with that. I know who they came from. And I'm not talking about their mama. I'm just trying to tell you, God will put mirrors in our life if we'll listen. The greatest mirror of all is right here. Right here. So what David has, he has a wise reprover. Nathan comes in and he gives an analogy as a mirror. He tells David, he says, a man in your kingdom, he's wealthy, he's got all these sheep, and he's got a neighbor and that neighbor only has one. This man's sheep are all just possessions. This man's little lamb is his pet. 
I mean, you know, there's a difference in having a pet lamb and having one we're raising to butcher. Is there a difference? Some lambs you want to kill. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> but not this guy. His lamb is his pet. And when it's time for this fellow to feed his guest, and he just, Nathan goes through like this, a true story in the kingdom. He says what he does, instead of taking one of the hundreds that he has, he goes over and gets the pet and slaughters it. It's got to be like me. I'm living in property. Man, there's deer running everywhere. And one of my neighbors captures a fawn, raises it, puts a collar on it, puts a bow on its head, and come deer season. I think, man, I want to fill my tag. And that one's easy pickings. Boom! And I shoot their pet deer. Man, no pity. Oh, it riles David up. So an analogy is given. And in this analogy... We must understand, David, Nathan's not there because he's irritated at David. Nathan's not there because he hates David. Nathan is there preaching to David because God told him to. God told him to. The, I was uh, talking to someone, it seems recently, and, and uh, they were, they were explaining, well, you know, there's no, really no need for preaching, teaching. No, the Bible says preach the word. Part of church is to have the word preached. God calls preachers, raise them up, preach the word. Uh, we are to teach and admonish. And Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. One of the things that troubles me in our day, there's a tremendous emphasis, and if you'll bear with me for just a moment, there's a tremendous emphasis in our day on expositional preaching. And I believe in expositional preaching. We're doing some of that right now. But what, the, what will be said oftentimes has become almost a fad. If you, if you have pastors, we preachers, we have other preachers to listen to, certain things get in vogue for preachers as well. And so today you're kind of a weirdo and you're kind of a, you're not doing your job if you ever preach a topical message or something like that, though they're in the Bible. Just take the Bible, go verse by verse, and when I'm concerned with some, not all, because expositional preaching is a good thing, but I'm concerned with some that the reason is let's keep the preaching generic so no one ever feels like they're being pinpointed. Well, what good does that do anybody? No one ever feels like the preacher's talking to me. Well, how would you like to be David? There's not anybody else to talk to. Huh? Nathan shows up and he gives this analogy. And the analogy was commissioned by God. God, the Bible says, sent Nathan to David. I don't believe Nathan got up and said, you know what I want to do today? I want to go confront my king with his sin. You ever been on that end of things? That is not a fun job. But that's what God told Nathan to do. You go confront David with his sin. So it's commissioned by God. There's great clarity in this analogy. He gets right to the heart of the issue. The problem was not killing sheep. The problem was not being a thief and stealing somebody's lamb. I mean, it was. The problem was a man whose heart was hard toward his neighbor because his heart was hard toward his God. David had gotten himself a calloused heart. He had gotten into battle and all these things. He's not sensitive. He knew the will of God. You remember what the order of God was for the king? He's supposed to have a copy of the law by his, by his bed and he's supposed to be writing that out on a regular basis. I'm guessing David wasn't doing that. And what happens is, in a moment of time, when he's cold-hearted against God, he falls into, steps into sin, lust, adultery, murder. And the analogy, though it's about sheep, that, that keeps David from knowing where Nathan's going right away. He's got to get the verdict first. Got to get the verdict first. And then he can say, now you've just condemned yourself. So that's what he does. He gives an analogy, commissioned by God. There's great clarity in it. 
The consequence of it, verses 5 and 6, And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. I remember when it began to register with me. I was in my late teens or early 20s. Unless God intervenes, I will never be as hard on myself as I am on somebody else. Never. Unless God pins me in a corner and makes me face myself, I will always find that other people are worse than me. And I know in my soul that's not true. And listen, church, tonight. One of the reasons we have to have preaching is so that we can be confronted with who we really are. Without it, we won't do it. Without the preaching of God's Word, not the preaching of a man's opinion, but the preaching of God's Word, whether it be by an account like this or direct instruction, you and I will always think that we're in the clear. How could Nathan or David, I don't know how long this went on, the woman is expecting his child, we're months into this sin, and David is carrying on life like normal. How do you have a woman's husband murdered? He was one of your best soldiers. And get up and go to bed and eat your breakfast every day without a grieved soul. How? You've not been confronted. You say, wouldn't that be clear in his mind? No. Do you think our sin is clear in our mind without confrontation? It is not. It is not. We must be confronted with our sin, whether it is one-on-one, face-to-face, or in a preaching setting like this. If not, we'll carry on year after year thinking we're fine. See, we have the Holy Spirit within us. We do, and the Holy Spirit commissioned preaching and teaching. Amen? And so then my point is this. The analogy that was given, the message that was preached was commissioned by God. It was given with great clarity. Nathan uses this parable to paint such a clear picture of what a vile man, this thief is that stole his neighbor's lamb and slaughtered it for his own consumption. And then he turns right around, and from the analogy he makes an application. He doesn't say, and David, um, maybe you should think, uh, this might be you. Maybe. Um, Perhaps. I know this. As a preacher, and I'm no prophet like Nathan, but the preacher must prophesy. I mean, proclaim the word of God. It's one thing to preach in generalities. It's another to preach in specifics. I've said it to you this way. It's one thing to preach on the sins of America. Well, then that's outside these walls. It's another to preach on the sins in these pews. One of them, he said, get them, preacher. The other one, we go, hey, what are we doing that for? Right? By the way, the preacher must receive preaching as well as give it, just so we're clear. There's no, um, there's no place where you're immune from reproof. King David, if kings are prone to correction, certainly preachers are. My point is this, so tonight, the analogy wasn't just left, and Nathan says, now you think about these things, David. You think about this parable I've just given you and ask God to give you light. Is that what he does? No, he makes an application. He says, now, there was a man like this, and David, once he's passed judgment, he said, I'm going to tell you what, Nathan, I'm the king here, and you've told me about a man in my kingdom that is a low-down skunk. That's not the word he uses, it's in the Hebrew <laughs> All right. He must die. And the next words out of Nathan's mouth are, Thou art the man. Thou art the man. 
Do you remember when you got saved? And you studied what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross and the cruelty of those who put him there? Do you remember when the Holy Spirit of God said, you are responsible for what happened to him? You didn't get saved until you believed that. Until you believed that his death and suffering was on your account. At some point in time, the Holy Spirit of God had to use somebody to say, you're the condemned sinner. You're the one. You're the thief on the cross. You're Barabbas. You're the high priest. You're the man. Huh? We are, by the way. Even so, once we're saved, David here is a man who served God. He sl- look, this is the man who slew Goliath. This is the man who had led God's people to victory after victory after victory. And yet here's a man, here's a man, the Bible says the Spirit of God came upon him from the day he was anointed and never departed from him. That means right now the Spirit of God was not departed from David. But David is so attuned to his own lusts, attuned to his own life, that he can't hear the Spirit of God. But God sent a preacher to say, here's the kind of man you have in your kingdom. And David said, he has to die. And the, king, and the, the preacher said, and you're him. You're the man. May I say this, in your Christian life, there have to come a point where God says, you are not worthy to live. You know what happens at the cross? We realize we're not worth living and we die. Say, no more of my will, no more of my way. I've made a mess of things. That's why Christ died for me. And I believe you can be saved and yet that truth not have a hold of you yet. That the cross of Christ is not only about pardoning you, it's about putting you in the grave. So you can say, God says, you're the man. You're the one that has sinned. And here's what happens with David. The reproof comes, the rebuke comes, and a recompense is spelled out, meaning Nathan says, not only are you the man, let's read the verses again, but here's why you're so culpable, David. God gave you so much and you weren't content. That's a word that's come up all day long in this building. We need to take heed to that. When the Spirit of God runs a theme, here's a man that's not content with the blessings of God in his life. And out of that he sinned greatly. Verse 7, And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house, and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. God says, David, I have bestowed blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon you but it wasn't enough for you. That tells us what David's problem was, was lust. Verse 9, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, here's what David, if he was like many of us, he would say, ah, hey, whoa, whoa, time out, time out. I didn't kill Uriah. I, I mean, technically, I didn't. It was the enemy that killed him. You know, hey, Nathan, you don't know the story. Where did you come from? I didn't kill him. Uriah was at my palace for days. He slept on a cot right down there at the palace door. I never touched the man. A man that will answer this kind of reproof like that is a fool. When we, we, when we start, how many of you remember our illustrious former president, Mr. Clinton? When confronted with his sin, he said, no, that's not what I did. I mean, always hanging on a technicality. Define the term. You with me? Listen, when we do that, when we start playing attorney, 
when God's confronted us with our sin, we are already in a heap of trouble. Well, I didn't kill him. That's not what what David said. What Nathan says is, he just cuts the chase. You killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. By the way, technically, did David ever put a sword in his hand? Did he run it through Uriah? No, he, he put a letter in the hand of Joab and said, put him in the heat of the battle where valiant men are and let the enemy do it for us. Hey, it's prerogative of a king to command his servants, isn't it? Hmm. But God says, that's not the way I see it. The way I see it is not what you say you did or how you tried to cover it with your shenanigans. I know what you did. You killed him. You did it. So the reproof goes on and says in verse 10, now he begins to get into what's going to be the recompense. He says, now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house. You used a sword to kill Uriah. And therefore, the sword's going to come into your house. Never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. So he says, you've been guilty of murder, adultery, and thievery. Now, therefore, the sword, verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. That's what Absalom did, by the way. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. The Bible says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. David had been busy covering his sins. And God says, I ain't going to let it happen. Whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Here's a man who's been covering his sin. He's faced with a decision now. Nathan the prophet comes in, gives him an analogy makes an application. He reproves him. He convinces David, you're the man in the story. This was just an analogy, and you're the thief who stole the neighbor's lamb. God is holding you accountable. He rebukes him and says, God gave you all these blessings, and you despised him and despised his word by disregarding his commandments on your life. Now here's what the recompense is going to be. You're going to have trouble rise up out of your own home. The sword will devour Oh, the sorrow that you read of in David's life following this. He loses Amnon. He loses Tamar. He loses Absalom. He loses the baby in, his, in, 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 uh, in Bathsheba's womb. I want to ask you something very quickly before we move on. After 2 Samuel chapter 12, do you ever find David complaining to God about all the bad things that happened to him after this? Not once. You know why? Because he repented. He agreed with God, what I did is deserving of this. Now, I would ask this as well. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Didn't God forgive him? Then should none of those consequences come? Forgiveness doesn't mean there's not natural consequences for sin. Forgiveness means I am now back in fellowship with God. He's not going to hold it against me. But listen closely, especially young people. Decisions have results. And you can't walk that back. I heard a pastor say one time, you can choose the road you travel, but you can't choose where it ends. Roads go to certain places. You can get off of that road if you want. By God's grace, it's called repentance. But the fact of the matter is, you be careful of the decisions you make because they have consequences. David made an instantaneous decision. I believe he made a number of decisions leading up to this, by the way. He disregarded other commandments of God. Got him in this position of sin. But the fact of the matter is, David's response to this is what has us in this text tonight. That's verse 13. David makes a very simple statement. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned 
against the Lord. He said, what you have said is true. I knew what God said, and I disobeyed Him. You know what he's saying? I humbly accept everything you just said. Now, how often does that happen in response to Bible preaching in the United States of America today? How often is a message preached that reveals our sin, our willful, knowledgeable disregard for the instruction of our, of our Savior, that we say, yeah, there's some things in my life right now, and they are the consequences of my own sinful decisions. And I won't argue, I won't complain, God's right. I mean, there's no that though David had much heartache after this, he never got out of fellowship with God. This never happened again. I mean, let me say this. Prior to this, David had a problem with women in his life. He took multiple wives. That was never right. God allowed it, but it was never right. Do you know how many wives he took after Bathsheba? Zero. God got down to a root problem in his life, corrected it, and David ended his life in perfect fellowship with his Savior. Why? Because when faced with the truth, instead of going around it, denying it, and justifying self, David said, I have sinned. And what's he say next? Not like Pharaoh. You know what Pharaoh said when he was confronted with his sin? I have sinned against you, Moses and Aaron. No, no. David understood he had sinned against Bathsheba, but that was because he sinned against the Lord. He had sinned against the kingdom, but that was because he sinned against the Lord. You see, if we will stay in obedience to the Lord, we'll, we'll stay right with people. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord. He said, this is a, a matter between me and my God, his acceptance of responsibility. So we've seen the analogy that was given, the application that was made, and then acceptance of responsibility was simple, specific, and sincere. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't explain anything. He doesn't say, well, you know, you know it really, if you listen to what he does say, it'll help us know what he, how he doesn't respond. It helps us know the kind of ear David had. He sat there and heard every word we just heard. I mean, honestly, help me here tonight. Can you imagine having done this and, and somebody come in and says, I need to have a conference with you. We need to talk. And they outline to you the most vile person you can imagine and then say, and that is you. And our natural response is, you get out of here. Don't you come around here telling me what I am. Not David. You have a wise reprover in Nathan. And you have an obedient ear in David. David says, what you've just said to me is true. I have sinned against the Lord. Here's what David, here's what an obedient ear is. An obedient ear loves the truth more than it loves itself. An obedient ear is an ear that is always open to the truth, even when that truth paints me in a bad light. Men, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged, 1 Corinthians 11 says. And the fact of the matter is, if we can get this matter down, we'll have personal revival in our lives. If we can get it down collectively, we'll have church revival. If we can see that spread, we'd have further revival. Now, whether God wants to do that or not, I can't take care of whether everybody else will, but I can make sure that I accept responsibility when the Word of God is so specific. How many of us understand David knew exactly what God was telling him he had done? And he says, I have, meaning God is right, I am wrong. So then his acceptance of responsibility was simple, specific, 
and sincere. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. Confess means to acknowledge after the fact. So the idea of confession is not me doing a self-examination and determining all the things I think I've done wrong. That's not confession. Confession is when the Holy Spirit of God uses the Word of God, tells us what we've done wrong, and we agree with Him. That's confession. When God says, you did this, you, you looked in lust, you told a lie, uh, you were unclean in your conduct, uh, you committed adultery, you committed fornication. How many of you know that people redefine terms after we've committed sins? Well, what I did wasn't a lie. Well, what I did wasn't adultery. No, I understand what my neighbor did. That was adultery, but not what I did. What I, that look I gave, that wasn't lust. You know, the world we live in, and we can come up with, no, 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 God has terms. And the obedient ear accepts those terms even when it's an indictment on me. Amen? And it's a confession is God will tell us what's wrong. How many of you know that our Heavenly Father knows how to reprove us? He does. He knows how to make clear. Our job is to agree with Him. Say, Lord, you told me this is what I've done. And you're right. And so then we find David's acceptance of responsibility. And finally, verses 13, the end of the verse, verse 14 So we've seen an analogy given, an application made, an acceptance of responsibility, an acquittal given, verses 13 and 14. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. That's forgiveness. God has pardoned your life. You're not going to die for this. Everything else has nothing to do with forgiveness. It has to do with natural outcomes of, of decisions, consequences for sin. Verse 14, Howbeit, because by this deed, because of what you've done, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. So Nathan, your act cast God in a bad light. Blaspheme means to speak evil of. The enemies of God, because of what David had done, were now going to have an occasion to say, a man after God's own heart, stealing another man's wife, So God could not respond to that neutrally or he would be complicit with David's sin. If he blesses this child that's born out of wedlock with a healthy delivery and all those things, what God is saying is, I'm okay with this. God's not going to do that. God's mercy and truth all at the same time. What I I want you to see tonight is David hears all this and he says, I've sinned. Nathan says, your sin is forgiven. The basis of his forgiveness was not his own merit, but the mercy of God. Based on the law, based on the law of Moses, what should have happened to David? The adultery and the murder he committed were by the law to be penalized by death. So the only way not to die is if the judge gives a pardon. And that's what Nathan says. Because of how you've responded to God with your humble heart, he's not going to kill you. Anything beyond that is God's mercy. I want you to hear this tonight. The rest of David's days were filled with trouble. Amnon, Tamar, Absalom. Even his last son on his deathbed plotting to take the kingdom. All the way till he died. The Bible says, I believe it's in Lamentations, Wherefore doth a living man complain, a a man for the punishment of his sins? Why do we complain when we get natural consequences for our sins? I'm not talking about God continuing to penalize us just... Be not deceived. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall we also reap. Here's what happens. David, really, the rest of his life was a pretty miserable existence, to be honest with you. 
It wasn't glorious like the first part. But if you study the rest of David's life, and Lord willing, in weeks to come, we'll, we'll do a series on David. I'd like to, if Lord will let me. You'll find a sweet spirit in that man. No longer does he try to preserve his life. He, you don't find this kind of conduct. The moment there's a hint of sin, he's repentant. And I'm trying to say here tonight is the obedient ear accepts the word of God no matter what. The obedient ear doesn't say, no fair. That's a scorner's ear. The obedient ear says, God is merciful to me and that he pardoned me and spared my life. And if he sees fit to let these things happen for the honor of his own name, so be it. So be it. The obedient ear is rooted in a humble and a submitted heart. And that's what you find in David. Let's look at a couple of verses and we'll conclude tonight. Uh, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. This is David's... You can read Psalm 51, of course. It's his confession to God in more specificity. We'll not read that tonight. Psalm 32, 1 and 2, he says this, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. You know what David's saying? The forgiveness of God has purified me, and a man is blessed who is made righteous by the mercy of God. He says this knowing that the sword will never depart from his house knowing that there are going to be consequences that he cannot get away from. But David writes, after this, so many psalms praising God, thanking God. Why? Because he had an obedient ear. And the summation of this tonight is really, our, our third point is the heart of the message. When I am confronted with the word of God that makes it abundantly clear that there's sin in my life, whether it seems small or large, do I have an ear that says, if God in his word sees what I'm doing is unfit, then it is. And God's right. And God's right. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall offend them. And one of the things I believe, and you're hearing this throughout the entire message, that has limited the hand of God in awakening his people is how easily we're offended at the rebuke and the reproof of God's word. We're so easily offended to say, I try my best. How many of us know we're out giving the gospel to lost people? They're easily offended at the hint that they're not righteous enough for God. Yet we are often guilty of the same thing. At the slightest hint that I'm not a spiritual saint, that I need some correction in my life, there's an offense, then it breaks down that Wise reprover, obedient ear picture. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be a wonderful, and by the way, I think it's entirely possible, wouldn't it be a wonderfully good thing? We have a wise reprover. We, we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts. We have His Word in our hands. And the preacher may get up and do a terrible job handling it, but at least we have a wise reprover here. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we form that beautiful picture of an, of an, of an earring of fine gold? If God could count on the ear of Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church to always be tender to his rebuke and his reproof. What do you think God can do with our church if every one of us will have that kind of an ear? Oh, he'll revive us. I have no doubt. The only thing that would hinder that is if we respond to that reproof and rebuke like Saul rather than like David. David knew that when he said, I've sinned against the Lord, it meant his own death penalty. 
but he said it anyway. I don't know about you. That's very instructive. (laughs) Am I willing to accept whatever God says because it came from his mouth, knowing the word of the Lord is right? The word of the Lord is right. Read Psalm 119 and you hear the heart of David toward God. Whatever God says, he's right. And if he sends somebody my way telling me I'm wrong, the only thing I have to do is agree with it.